Chapter Twenty Three of In the Schoolroom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. In the Schoolroom by John S. Hart. Chapter Twenty Three. Phrenology. In the previous chapter, I gave a leaf from my experience of life in a boarding school. I propose now to give another leaf from the same book. The incident about to be narrated, however, is not given as an illustration of boarding school life, but merely because it happened at school. It might have happened elsewhere, though the circumstances and occasion were particularly favourable for giving to it a curious point. While I was at the head of the Edgehill School at Princeton, New Jersey, a stranger called one day and announced himself as Professor. The name is one almost as well known in the history of phrenological science as that of Professor Combe. He said he was about to give a lecture in Princeton on the subject of phrenology, and as he was an entire stranger to himself and to all the pupils and teachers in the school, he thought it would be a good opportunity for making an interesting and critical experiment. He proposed, therefore, with my consent, to spend an hour in presence of the school in examining the heads of any of the boys that I might call up for that purpose. From the very intimate relations existing in a boarding school, the characters of the boys would be well known to me and to their companions and teachers, and we would have, therefore, the means of knowing how far he succeeded in his experiment. Thinking that an hour spent in this way would not be misspent, that it would at least give some variety to the monotonous routine of study and lessons, and, let me add, being not entirely without curiosity as to the result, I consented to his proposition, and called the school together in the large assembly room. All the boys being in their seats, together with the teachers and the ladies of the household, I stated briefly the object of their assembling and the method in which it was proposed to proceed with the experiment. They were to observe entire silence and to give no indication by word or look, so far as they could help it, to show whether the professor was hitting the mark or not, as he read off to them the characters of their companions. The boys took to the idea at once and the excitement very soon was at fever heat. Placing a chair upon the platform in full view of the school, and the professor alongside of it, I called up, boy number one. This happened to be a lad about fourteen, from the interior of Alabama. He was the most athletic boy in school, full big he was of brawn and eke of bones, as Chaucer says, in his picture of the miller. He could beat any boy in school in wrestling, and no doubt could flog any of them in a fist-fight, though on this point I speak only from conjecture, as the part of boys' amusements is not always as well known to their teachers as it is to the boys themselves. The professor, after some little manipulation of the cranium, read off the boy's character with tolerable accuracy. Anyone, however, with a grain of observation, who had seen the boy stalking up to the platform, with bold, almost defiant air, 
or had noticed his bull-neck, hard fist, and swaggering gait, could not have had much difficulty in guessing what kind of a boy he was, without resort to his bumps for information. It was written in unmistakable characters, all over his physical conformation, from his head to his heels. I noticed, however, that, while the professor's fingers were busy with the boy's cranium, his eyes were not less busy with the faces of his youthful auditors. Whenever his interpretation of any bump was a palpable hit, his success could be all too plainly read in the upturned faces before him. If the success was very marked and decisive, the youngsters were entirely unable to restrain their expressions of surprise and admiration. It was very evident, from his method of procedure, that he was guided by these expressions quite as much as by his fingering of the bumps. He would first mention lightly some trait of character. If it attracted no particular attention, he would quietly fall onto something else. But if the announcement seemed to create a little breeze, showing that he had made a hit, he would then dwell upon the point and intensify his expressions until, in some instances, the school was in quite an uproar of satisfaction. Possibly there was a spice of malice in what followed. At all events, it seemed to me that that was a kind of game at which two could play, and if, under the circumstances, he chose to palm off for knowledge gained by the fingers what he was really getting by means of eyes and ears, there would be no great crime in punishing him a little for his impertinence. So, in calling the following boys, I selected some who were notorious in school for certain marked traits, but whose general appearance and manner gave no indication of their mental peculiarities, and I questioned the professor in regard to each boy, after a method suited to the case. Boy number two was a youth of moderate abilities, and was, in all things, save one, just like other boys. But in one matter he had a peculiarity about which there could be no mistake, that was in the matter of music. So, after questioning the professor about various indifferent points, moral and intellectual, such as reverence, combativeness, secretiveness, language, ideality, etc., I asked incidentally something also about tune and music. The answer was such as might be safely given in regard to ninety-nine out of every hundred persons, some vague, indefinite epithet that would apply to almost anyone. But, seeing a little sparkle in the eyes before him, the gentleman manipulated the cranium again, and then expressed himself somewhat more strongly. As his expression increased in strength, the excitement of the audience increased, until he was quite lost in hyperbole, as they were in uproar. He even went into particulars. Now, said he, though I never saw this boy before, yet I venture to say that his ear for music is so quick that he can pick up almost any tune by once, hearing it played or whistled in the street. A general rustle through the school, boys winking and giving knowing looks one to another. I dare say he could now sing or whistle a hundred tunes from memory. More knowing looks. Possibly he may never make a very accurate performer, on account of the very ease with which he picks up a tune. He learns the tune so easily by the ear, 
that he will not submit to the drudgery of studying it scientifically. You think then, Professor, that the boy has decided indications of musical talent? Undoubtedly, he has musical talents of a very high order, suppressed shouts, amounting almost to genius. The fact was, poor Charlie was the butt of the whole school on account of his utter inability to learn the first elements of either the art or the science of music. He could neither sing, whistle, nor play. He could hardly tell Old Hundred from Yankee Doodle. Although he had been taking music lessons for two years, he could not rise and fall through the eighth notes to save his neck. His attempts to do so were a sort of indiscriminate goo, 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 like that of an infant, and the excitement among the boys, which the professor had mistaken for applause and admiration, grew out of the astonishment. They were simply laughing at him. Boy number three was a youth over fourteen years old, regularly and symmetrically formed in face, features, and person. There was nothing in his make or bearing to indicate any marked peculiarity. Yet, he had a peculiarity as marked as that of the preceding. He was singularly deficient in the capacity for mathematical studies. He was studying English grammar, geography, and Latin, and got along in these branches about as well as the majority of his class. But when it came to the science of numbers, he seemed to stick fast. Neither I nor any of my teachers had been able to get him beyond long division. It was as clear a case as I have ever known of natural deficiency in that department of the mental constitution. Yet this boy was declared by the manipulator to have a decided talent for mathematics. Boy number four was my crack mathematician. He was really in mathematics, what our manipulator had made out number two to be in music. His quickness in the perception of mathematical truth was wonderful. Besides this natural readiness in everything pertaining to the science of quantity and the relations of numbers, he had received a good mathematical training, and he was, in this department, far in advance of his years. Whenever we had a public exhibition, George was our show-card. The rapidity with which he would fill the blackboard in solving difficult problems in quadratics was almost bewildering. It was not every teacher, even, that could follow him in his quick but exact evolutions of complex algebraical formulae. In Greek and Latin he hardly attained to mediocrity, being always behind his class, while in mathematics he was superior, not only to every boy in school, but to any boy of the same age that I have ever had in any school. But this boy received from the professor only a second or third-rate rank for mathematical indications, while highly praised for linguistics, in which he was decidedly inferior. The fact was, I saw that the gentleman was trying to read me, as well as the more youthful part of his audience, and so, in questioning him about this boy, I was malicious enough to be very minute and specific in my inquiries about any indications of a talent for language while the questions about mathematics were propounded just like those about half a dozen other points, that is, 
with no special stress or emphasis, but just enough to draw from the professor a clear and distinct expression of opinion. Boy number five was perhaps the most critical case of all, yet the one most difficult to describe. He was good, and about equally good in all his studies. He stood head in almost every class. He was so uniformly good that his character became monotonous, and would have been insipid but for the manly vigour that marked all his performances. His moral were like his mental traits. He was indeed our model boy. In two years he had not had one demerit mark. He was on all sides rounded and complete. Totus teres atque rotundus. The uniformity of his goodness was sometimes a source of anxiety to me. There was danger of his growing up with a self-satisfied, pharisaical spirit. Thus far, however, I have not named the feature which I regarded as the critical one, and which had led me to select him as one of the subjects for examination. Model boys are to be found in all schools, but this boy had a power of reticence, which was to me a continual study, and it was this feature in his character that I wanted to bring out in the examination. He was not a sneak. There was nothing sly about him. His conduct was open and above board. What he did was patent to all. But what he thought, or how he felt, no one knew. Not Grant himself could more perfectly keep his own counsel. If a new rule was promulgated, Joseph obeyed it to the letter. But whether it was agreeable or disagreeable to him, no teacher could ever find out. Nor was his obedience of that tame, passive sort which comes from indifference and lack of spirit. We all knew him to be resolute and to be possessed of strong passions, but his power of self-restraint was equal to his power of reticence. He had indeed, in a very marked degree, qualities which you look for only in those who have had long schooling in the stern realities of life, and which you find rarely even then. He was as self-posed as a man of fifty, with not a particle of that easy impulsiveness so nearly universal at his age. None of the gentleman's performances surprised me so much as the character which he assigned to this boy, and all the more because something of the boy's self-continence and reserve was written upon his face and manner. He was represented by the professor in general terms, as having a free and easy, rollicking sort of disposition, not being really worse than his companions, though probably having the reputation of being so. If he got into more scrapes than the others, Joseph was never in a scrape in his life, it was more owing to his natural impulsiveness than to anything inherently bad in him. And then, when he did get into a scrape, he had no faculty for concealing it. His organ of secretiveness was unusually small, the boys would hardly admit him to a partnership in their plans of mischief, so sure was he inadvertently to let the cat out of the bag, etc., etc. Boy number six was the weakest boy, mentally, that we had in school. He was barely able to take care of himself. Some of his mistakes and blunders were so ridiculous that they were handed down among the traditionary jokes of the school, and I am afraid even at this day to repeat them lest they may be recognized. 
if the manipulator had had the cranium of daniel webster and his fingers he could not have drawn a mental character more marked with every trait that belongs to intellectual greatness of the highest order finding that he was making a decided impression upon his young hearers the professor continued to pile up qualities and powers until the scene became almost too much for the most practised gravity the examinations occupied an hour and i made copious notes of the whole writing down as nearly as i could the exact expressions used by the operator the report which i have now given of it is as nearly literal as it is safe to make when the professor was through and was about to leave he asked me privately to tell him how far he had succeeded in his experiments not wishing to say anything disagreeable i evaded the question to the best of my ability answering with some vague generalities but indicating sufficiently that it was not agreeable to be more explicit he pressed me however to tell him candidly and explicitly whether he had succeeded and how far i then told him frankly that he had failed point-blank in every case ah said he you are sceptical no sir said i scepticism implies doubt and i have no longer any doubts on the subject my scepticism is entirely removed end of chapter 23 recording by julie niedermeyer